What is going on, everybody? I am Greg Hellback, and my co-host, Michael Pinter, and I are bringing you another episode of the New York Real Estate Investing Show. This show is all about how to be successful in New York State, one of the best places and one of the most difficult places to do business in. And each and every week, Michael and I are going to bring awesome content to everybody who wants to learn how to do this business successfully in New York. Between the both of us, we have done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of deals. We've made millions of dollars and we've also made a ton of mistakes. So if you want to try your best to avoid those mistakes, definitely take a listen to this podcast. Every single week, we are going to provide actionable tactical steps on how you can be successful investing in the Empire State of New York. Stay tuned and welcome to the show. All right, welcome to the show today. Today, we're going to talk about a topic that is pretty much uh, involves every transaction, whether you like it or not, and it's financing, getting mortgages. We're going to talk about hard money. We're going to talk about uh, traditional mortgages. And I have to say, I probably have the best person in the world to bring on about this because, Mike, I believe you were in the mortgage business for five minutes, right? 17 years in the same working for the same company. That's that's incredible, man. So when did you get out of the mortgage business? Just because 2013, I, I got out of it. I started okay. in 1997. OK, so that's that's a long time. You've seen you've seen a lot of stuff, I, I can imagine. So. I just I feel like a lot of people listening to the show they they're either flipping homes or they're wholesaling homes and like I think when I when I first started I remember I didn't understand how the financing process works so I would get these objections and I wouldn't understand like oh why is that person getting denied or hey why you have to pay these points for hard money so I feel like if the listeners just have a better understanding on on what the real reality of financing is in New York, they can just make better decisions. Because really, whether you're wholesaling or rehabbing or novating to be determined to be to be coming soon, financing is going to pay play a critical role in the transaction. So I want to just kind of have this almost be like an interview style with you because you know so much about this. Okay. So let's actually start first with without the hard money. Let's start with the traditional financing. When you were a lender, okay, so you used to be a big lender. What are the things that you would look for in order to make sure someone could get a mortgage? Because like you could have all the money in the, or you could have the, a deep desire, a big down payment, but you still can't be bankable sometimes. So right. I'll just kind of let you take over. Cause you, I know you just. Right. So I was taught the mortgage business that a mortgage, a residential standard, traditional mortgage stands on four legs, income, assets, credit, and appraisal. Those are the four parts of a mortgage. So a borrower needs to ha have enough, uh, verifiable income that they can afford to buy the property. Usually that means just to be very superficial that their, their total income, gross income um, has to be their, their total debt, including the mortgage payment. And then that includes the pity, the principal interest tax insurance has to be no more than let's say 40% of their gross income. So that's income assets. They need to be able to show assets to put down for the part of the, loan that they're not getting. They need to either have that money or show that they're getting it as a gift. Credit is, we all know that it's going to be very credit score based, right? The higher the credit score, the better terms you can get, the lower the credit score, the worse terms. And at some point it's going to be so low that you're not going to get a traditional loan. And then the appraisal is, you know, the, the, the cost of the, is the assessment of value that an independent appraiser does on the property. And that's going to determine the value, which is always going to be on a purchase the lower of the appraised value or the purchase price. So 
if you're buying something for four hundred thousand dollars and it appraises for three fifty, the value is going to be three fifty. They don't care that you're paying more, and they may make the borrower sign something that says, "Hey, you understand you're buying this fifty thousand dollars more than it appraises for." Um, or the other way around, if it uh, if it if you're buying it for four hundred thousand dollars and it appraises for five hundred thousand dollars, it's still based on your purchase price of four hundred thousand dollars. So there's always going to be a determining factor of an LTV, a loan to value. That's a percentage that we're going to allow you to borrow. So the typical loan to values, you can go up as high as uh, FHA today is 96.5%. You only have to put 3.5% down. Wow. Traditional financing, usually the Fannie Freddie, which is which is the, the government-sponsored entity that buys all the loans from regular lenders like Bank of America, Wells Fargo, Chase, um, they're usually going to cap it at 95%. But... You want ideally, you'd like to stay under eighty percent because if you borrow more than eighty percent of the value, then you're going to have to pay something every month called private PMI, private mortgage insurance. What is that? Yeah, that's I never really understood what that is. So PMI is something that just required if the lender is lending you above eighty percent of the value of the property, they want to be insured for that uh, that that amount, and they make you the borrower pay for that insurance. So you have to pay something. So every time you take an FHA loan, which is something that changed with FHA since I was in the business, even if you're borrowing 50% on FHA loan, which is why it's not a good idea to borrow 50% on FHA loan, you have to pay monthly mortgage insurance uh, with FHA forever. You can never get it off. On traditional financing, if you borrow, let's say 85%, you'll have to pay mortgage insurance on that 5%. Um, and at some point you can say, hey, my my I, I paid it down or because of payments and I might my principal balance is reduced, or maybe the appraised value went up and you can get rid of the MI. You can remove the MI. With FHA, it never comes off now, it's always there. And it's basically you're paying into an insurance fund. FHA, what people don't know, is really an insurance company. It's a government-sponsored insurance company that insures all these loans that are being made. And if they default, all this money that was being put into mortgage insurance, right? And by the way, in FHA, you have to pay UF. MIP, which is upfront mortgage insurance premium, which is let's say two or 3% of the loan. And that goes into this massive fund. And when, not if, when some of these loans default, they take money out of that insurance fund and repay the lender for any lender loss. On, with it, so that's the way it is. If you're borrowing over 80%, you have to pay monthly into a fund and it depends on the loan amount. It depends on what the LTV is. So you're gonna pay much more MI on a bigger loan and you can pay much more MI if you're borrowing 95% than if you're borrowing 85%. So anything above 80%, you need mortgage insurance on any on any traditional loan. Interesting. So basically, the less you borrow, you, so if you borrow less than 80% of the mortgage amount, you of the purchase price the purchase or the appraised value, whichever is lower, you don't need to you don't need to pay mortgage insurance. And no, and no, MR. because you have enough equity. Is that the logic behind that? The logic is if you're putting 20% down, this is a this is a more secure. I mean, it's basic logic. It makes Better sense, loan. right? It's a better loan. The reason why everything fell apart in 2008. Yeah, what, what is that? Because that that's where everyone's like, what what happened? Okay, so I was in the in the thick of it. Um, I can tell you that it's close to my chair here. I have my opinions of it, but I, I was pretty dead on in, in the middle of it. So we knew that something was wrong because nobody's. We didn't say no. We didn't have to say no to anybody. You didn't need income. Although all those pillars I just uh, told you that the mortgage loan stands on were irrelevant. You didn't need an income, you didn't need assets, you didn't need good credit, and you could still get a loan for 100% of the purchase price. So that was crazy. And that really was the problem. The problem was that people were buying properties on the expectation that the, they, that the values would keep going up, but not putting any money down. So when the properties didn't go down, didn't go up, they just walked away. They didn't have any any skin in the game. That's the problem. That was the problem. 
right? Who to blame for? I blame Wall Street for it, but or the, and the rating agencies. But that doesn't. That's a whole other discussion. But basically, that was the that, that was the problem that nobody you don't have to put any money down on the on the property. So then, if things went didn't go the way you expected, you walked away. Today, underwriting standards are significantly uh, tougher. And if you want a no income, no asset loan, you're probably going to put thirty percent down. With the thinking being that you're going to protect that because you have thirty percent of the purchase price in there, and you're not going to walk away from that. Um, so that's the that's the basic the basic gist of. Uh, it's fine to make higher risk loans, like loans where you don't have to show income, if the borrower is putting money into the property. If you are, and, and it's fine to make higher LTV loans, like 96.5%, if the borrower is completely qualifying for everything, you can show income assets and credit. I see. So they're, all these lenders are just looking at the risk factor. It sounds like that's all they're doing, really. So now they do. At the time, if you want to get into it a little deeper, Wall, Wall Street started making these, buying these loans up and packaging them into securities to sell to other people. If you want to watch the movie The Big Short, it, it explains it pretty Did well. I call it tranche. Well, the, they they package they make them into securities and then they then they cut them into different tranches. But what what happened was that we were in this really good up market, right? So let's say two thousand five, six, seven, market just kept going up, and what was happening was that they weren't seeing any defaults. There were just there were just were no defaults. People would buy a house and then they would just sell it for a profit right after. So everything was paying off. So they looked at this history and they said, well, we can keep doing this and, and not they weren't getting paid for their risk, right? If they would have charged 17% uh, as an interest rate, then it would have almost made sense. But they were charging 8% for an interest rate instead of 6%. This wasn't they weren't getting paid for the risk. So then everything really fell apart when the market peaked out, right? And when that market peaked, millions of people walked away from their loans because they didn't have any 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 reason to to keep it because they didn't put any money into into the deal. So then the loans became almost extremely non-valuable because so it was, they were over leveraged. So what Wall Street was doing is we're taking like uh, you know a thousand loans and creating a security and then and then selling those securities to let's say pension funds who needed uh oh, okay. and insurance companies who needed us a uh, regular income, right? An insurance company needs income coming in. A pension fund needs income coming. So they bought these things. The rating agencies were rating them A plus. And these pension funds and, and insurance companies thought that this was great. If the rating agency, you know, Standard and Poor's and Fitch and Moody's rated these things A plus, then these were great. And they were getting great returns on them. And Morgan and Wall Street was making tons of money in fees. And then um as soon as some of these loans started to go bad, it was like a house of cards because it wasn't just securities. They made CDOs, synthetic CDOs, which are uh, collateralized debt obligations. So they had all these securities that were based on shitty loans. And then they created these synthetics, which had pieces of all these loans into them and selling those. So all this thing just fell, fell apart and, uh, and the whole business really went to crap in about, in about six months. And uh, it was... It was an interesting time to be in the business. So when you were in the thick of this, you know, back in, you know, the mid early 2000s or whatever, what, like, how long did this timeline take to where it was decent to where it was a full blown shitstorm, even in New York? Cause New York didn't get smoked as bad as like San Diego or Phoenix. It still got no, smoked, we, but it didn't but, get blown but, out. Correct. But we were selling to the people, all the, all the Wall Street houses were in New York and the two biggest buyers were Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers who are not around anymore because of this. And they had, they had kept a lot of this crap on their books. That's the problem. You know, they didn't, you know, the problem always is you believe your own bullshit, right? So they believed that these things were good. They were telling people they're good and they were actually keeping 
you know, billions of dollars on their books of these things. And then suddenly one day, I, I, there was a guy named Rich Winter. There was a company called Winter. His company was called Turwin, which was like Winter Backwards. And he would buy a lot of second loans from us. And I remember he said one day early, early in the business, he goes, I think we're at a point where the entire ABS, which is asset-backed securities, it usually means second liens or credit card liens, the entire ABS market may cease to function. And when he said it, people thought he was crazy, but he was right. Because there was in, in like a course of a of a month or two, maybe three months, there was no big, like these things would trade hands. Wall Street would trade these things, right? You'd make loans. I would sell it to, to, to Winter Group or Bear Stearns or Credit Suisse or UBS. And they would immediately create a security and sell these things. And these things would trade. They, like there was an open market for them. And then within a few months, there was nobody buying them. Like nobody wanted to touch them. And anybody who was stuck with them really had stuff that was had no value, no value, right? Something's worth a billion dollars one day and it's worth zero the next day because no one wants to buy it. Mm. And that's what happened. And it probably, it probably took three to six months for it to happen. But I remember this guy, Rich Winter, was right on the money. He got out of the business, he sold all their shit. I think it took a, a somewhat of a loss on it because things were on the way down. But he got out. He got out. He got out with his integrity, and every, and he was right. That's interesting. So the last question on traditional mortgages. Oh, I have two more. So the first one is, how do how did how did your company? Because your company's still around to this day, which is amazing. How did you guys survive the shitstorm when about ninety percent of the other ones, maybe ninety five percent of the other ones, absolutely shut their doors and they ceased to exist? Sure. So I'll tell you that. Um, we did a couple of things. So we made our own matrix of loans that we didn't want to do, right? So we we didn't do 100% loans. We didn't even do like 95% loans. We kept it down to like 90%. So we didn't do the most, the riskiest loans. Also, we had a lot of people to sell to. I was the guy selling these loans in the secondary market. And we had a lot of different places to go to. So we got stuck with a little bit of crap, uh, like seven or 8 million. And we were able to to, to sell that at a, at a relatively small discount. Um, what happened after, ironically, and this is the crazy part, is that our best loans were still going to Chase and Bank of America and all those lenders. We were selling directly to them. All of those loans that went bad, they those those companies came back to us and said, you better buy them back from us. So we're sending a buyback request. It was a little bit crazy. Chase had tremendous um, technological problems. It couldn't find the file. Like they couldn't, it couldn't, they didn't know what the hell they were doing. Their system was terrible. So I remember they... Chase would send me a request. Hey, this loan you made two, a year ago, can you send us uh, the entire file? And I would send it. And then they would say, oh, this loan you made two years ago, send us the entire file. And I would send it. And then three months later, we get a buyback request for it. So then they started asking me, you know, we were only required to keep the, the files like two years. So they said, hey, can you send us this file from three years ago? So I said to the person who was asking me, who's really a stupid person to speak to, it was a mistake. I'm like, you know, I keep noticing that every time I send you these documents, you, ask, you send us a buyback request to buy back the loan. And she's like, well, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm just a clerk. So at some point, we, I, when we weren't required to send it back to them, I said, we're not going to send it back to you because we're just, we're just hanging ourselves by, you know, we're giving you the rope to hang ourselves with. But all the loans we sent to, 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 to Wall Street, to Credit Suisse and UBS, we we're sending a lot, like a couple hundred million dollars a month to Credit Suisse. Those loans, I don't think they ever got buyback requests. I think somehow they figured it out or got bailed out or I don't know what the hell happened. So, or the Swiss government bailed them out. I don't know. So, we they were able to survive. It was hard for a few years. It was hard because you're getting buyback requests for loans that are that are in default, that are already super underwater, and we had to fight with them, and we had to we, we fight with the lenders and decide whether you know whether we were going to take the buyback request or risk them telling us that we're cutting you off. We didn't want to get cut off, and it was it was a struggle. It was a very hard time, 
uh, it wasn't easy, but we didn't. A lot of the companies that went out of business were were, were short term companies because they were only doing those horrible loans, hundred percent loans, the, you know the worst the worst lo- loans that really never should have been made. So if you were doing all loans that should have been made, and one day you can't do those loans, you shut down. If you're doing good work, the company that I worked for was doing. We were doing good deals, a lot of purchases. We was we weren't just doing refinances. These were companies calling people and telling them you got to be crazy to keep your loan. Just refinance. I don't care about your income. I don't care about your assets. I don't care about anything. I'm going to save you money or get you or even more. I'm going to get you cash out, right? Even if I give you a higher rate, I, see. I have this option arm I can give you, and um, and we can and we can get you. I'll give you forty grand. And people on the other of the phone are like, well, I'll take forty grand. Why not? Tax free. So yeah, yeah. so the, the most of the companies that shut down really had had their business based on loans that weren't great. And our our business was really based on loans that weren't great. We were doing we were doing good business. We had done a couple of loans that ended up biting us in the butt, but it wasn't it wasn't a uh, existential threat. Interesting. Yeah. No. That makes that makes sense. I mean, that's that's interesting to hear because you hear all these people. You know, like if you watch the Big Short, which I encourage the listeners watch that uh, when they're done with this, is is like the the one guy in the movie, the, the guy Steve Carell or whatever. He was like calling it. Well, he was kind of. He believed it slowly, and then the dude out in San Jose was like, "Yo, this is a this is gonna be a shitstorm." So all those guys in the book, there's even more people, and they all knew when it was going on. But the but that that whole mess up in the in the securities market took a very long time because the Wall Street banks didn't want to actually admit that what they were holding was piles and piles of shit. So they kept a, an active market going, and those guys, what they did, the only way to make money on those was to short the. Uh, the CDS, right? Uh, what the hell is it called? The uh, the credit default swaps. The yeah. Short the credit default swaps. So what, what that does is it says, hey, when, when this security defaults, you're going to pay me, right? If you buy credit default swap and you think it's never going, you think it's never going to could go bad, but someone has to admit that this is a, de- a default situation. They had yeah. never they had never had a default before. They just kept going and going and going. So it took like a year. For the Wall Street to admit, oh, we're going to pay you on your credit default swap, um, and, and that's why a lot of these guys were crying for a while because they knew they were right, but it took a long time for the market to to, to give them the make them the billion dollars that they did. Like yeah, the and, then, and then once the, the the worm turned over there, they they turned around and cashed. Yeah, the guy Michael Burry made a bill, made a billion dollars. There are guys who made it. There's other guys who made billions of dollars shorting the market, but it was very very hard to do because you had to wait until Wall Street was willing to say, "You're right, we're going to pay you." Crazy. It's a crazy like they, they were buying. I think they were buying the credit default swaps. They were I buying think. them, and then people thought they were crazy because they were they spending. Were buying it, and Wall Street was taking the other side. So when when these things actually had to pay billions of dollars, Wall Street was like, "No, it's not in default. It's not really in default yet." They're still, you know, that's that's the kind of bullshit that they were trying to do. How did they end up making money though? Because obviously Wall Street was fucked. So how did they end up cashing in on their prize? Like who ultimately paid them? The Wall Street money? had to. Wall Street had to pay them something. You know. I might buy the credit default swap from Goldman Sachs, but Goldman Sachs might have sold it already to Morgan Stanley. They, 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 that's counterparty risk. Like Morgan Stanley had to pay. They had to write a check checks for billions of dollars for those default swaps because they took the wrong side of it. But they might have been long credit default swaps to pay the other end of it. You don't know. These traders do. You know they were doing anything. So, but how do they have the money to ultimately pay it back? Because they were pretty much building a house of cards. Well, that the, had no real the government. The government gave them each. You know. Billions and billions oh, of dollars. Government. So the government. Ended that up was the big bail. That was the big bailout. The government didn't. The government told told Credit Suisse to you get a, you have to be bought by Chase. Not Credit. They told the government told Bear Stearns they had to get bought by 
by Jamie Damone and Chase. And then the government said, we're not bailing. And then we're going to let Lehman go bad. And Lehman went bankrupt. And then everybody else was saying, we're all going to go bankrupt. And the government said, okay, we'll help you. It really wasn't so fair what they did to Lehman. They really, I mean, the, the chairman of Lehman really fucked up. I mean, he, he, he really screwed up. I mean, he could he could have he had opportunities to save the company and he he thought that he'd get bailed out by wall street by the government and he never did it's it's crazy it's cra- it was crazy it was a lot crazy. of friends I a lot of friends who worked for lehman a lot of friends who worked for bear stearns at the time these guys were crying i know guys who had their all their uh their retirement in bear stearns and they went and, and bear stearns was like 60 bucks and then a month later it was five five dollars three dollars it's so, it was a crazy time. So last was a crazy time. traditional question, and then we'll shift over to hard money, which is somewhat similar, not really though. But how does a mortgage broker lender how do they make money? Right, because everyone wants to get in the mortgage business or whatever. How right. Do they make so, money? so when every time you uh, sell a loan or make a loan um, as a broker, you're getting paid a commission. Um, in the good old days, you could pay pretty much charge whatever you want. Now it's much more um regulated they want all the people to make the same amount of money on every loan but you have to you know you make that money and the more money you make in theory the the higher the rate the borrower gets so theoretically if you're making less money it's probably better for the borrower but it's pretty they make it pretty standard like that that was the problem that they felt they needed to, to to fix they felt like well the mortgage broker's interest should be aligned with the borrower and the truth is it wasn't right because if we charge a higher rate we made more money and they didn't want that. So, or if we gave them a, a riskier product, we might have made more money. So they said everybody's going to make the same amount on every deal. So now you make it, but it's not it's not un, it's not unheard of for uh, a mortgage broker to make at least two percent on a loan. They make a loan for five hundred thousand dollars. They make a ten thousand dollar commission. Interesting. So if you're doing volume, you can, you know, that's where the that's where the money's made. There's a lot of people making a lot of money in the mortgage business. It's always and listen. You're selling money. You're always there's always going to be a market for it. Always. But that's how they pay it, and then then so that could be the mortgage broker actually made that loan gets a two percent. But the the company, if they know what they're doing on the secondary market, it can make an additional two percent when they sell it in the secondary market via, a, a, you know, just selling it to the to the right place. So the, the originator makes points up front, and then they they you know the company will make a spread. And the company they, will make yeah, company a company will make okay. a spread depending on what they do with it. They can keep it and service it. They can sell the servicing. You can get paid just to let somebody else service it for you. You can. Uh, you can sell the loan to uh, to another lender. Or you can sell the loan to Fannie Mae. There's a lot of things you can do to it. Interesting. A lot of money to be made in that business still. Uh, if yeah, you're, it's, what you're doing. It's a great business. I love I love the business. It just got it got way too regulated and drove me bananas. So that brings us to our next topic. So as you shifted from mortgage mortgage pinter to real estate real investor pinter. Yes. <laughs> Now you obviously had to borrow hard money and I borrow hard money and most successful people who make a million bucks a year plus are using hard money. So let's, let's get into what is hard money real quick. If people are brand new and then we'll get into kind of the mechanics, what they look for because of the real estate investor in New York. And I, I recommend hard money. The first deal I took down, actually not the first, the first New York deal I took down that was actually expensive. I used hard money. And uh, it was it was actually a pleasant experience. Uh, and sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. So let's just get into that because that's really a pleasure. Sure. Let's talk about what hard So hard money are different levels of lenders. Sometimes it could be from some guy who's got a few hundred thousand dollars to lend you, or sometimes it could be a big institution that lends billions of dollars a year. And they're basically loans on properties that usually are not going to get traditional financing because of the condition. 
and they are going to lend a borrower a percentage of their cost and a percentage based on very often what the after repaired value is. So typical for hard money now is they're going to not lend more than 60 to 70% of the after repaired value. And they're going to require the borrower, depending on the borrower's qualifications, to put between 30 and 10% down onto the deal themselves. They'll very often lend you also on the construction. So you're telling them, hey, I'm buying this house for three. It needs $100,000 worth of work. Eventually, it'll be worth six. They might lend you 100% of what the construction costs are, and they'll send you the money in pieces and draws. And for that, they're obviously taking a somewhat of a higher risk. They're going to get a higher rate of return and usually charge points. A point is 1% of the loan amount. So if I'm borrowing a $400,000 loan and I'm getting charged two points, I have an $8,000 fee that I got to pay at the closing. So that's what hard money is in a, in a nutshell, I guess. Okay. Here's my question that I still don't understand. All right. So sure. you talked about points. You just mentioned 2%. I've heard you say before net funding, right? What can you explain to at least sure. Mr. Hellback here, what that means? Cause I I'll do tell you, shit all the time. I don't I'll even tell know you exactly what it is. So let's say I'm a hard money lender. You want to borrow $400,000 from me right. and I'm charging you a, a 10% and two points. Correct. What I'm going to do is at the closing, I'm not going to send you $400,000. I'm going to send you $392,000. So instead of me sending you $400,000, you sending me a check back for eight, I'm just going to net fund those points out. I'm also going to net fund any fees I have. Let's say I charge a $1,000 underwriting fee. I'm going to take that out of the loan. So instead of me giving you the amount of money we agreed on and you then sending me a check back for it, I'm just going to fund you less. Now, you Let's say in that example where there's a $1,000 fee and two and two percent and a two-point fee on a $400,000 loan, I'm just going to send you $391,000. What that means is you're going to have to bring to the table that extra $9,000, which you would have done anyway. You would have just had to send me a check for it. Instead, you're going to bring it into the closing. Now, as a, as a lender, it's you much- You money more. doing that though, because you're ultimately giving less money out. How does that- Because you still have a loan for $400,000, my friend. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And I when see. it pays off, you're going to pay me the whole four hundred. I see. That's when I get it back. I see. I see. That makes sense. So you're, you're, they're basically, it's just more of a logistical thing. Like why would you it's set much, It's up? much easier and cleaner if you think about it. That's why at the closing, very there's very little time that a buyer is going to write checks to people, right? Maybe you'll pay the title closer or something. Everything is getting net funded out of the big pot, right? So you have a $400,000 purchase on a, let's say a $500,000 purchase, you have a $400,000 loan and there's $10,000 in closing costs, right? So you could get a, the, 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 the primitive way to do it, right? Is you get a loan for 400, I'd write checks for $9,000 back to the lender. And then I'd write a check for $10,000 to the, to, the, to the title company. But instead, they're going to take that $500,000 that I owe to the seller. And they're going to say $10,000 out is going directly to the, to the uh, title company. And all the closing costs are going directly, are net funded to the lender. And you're going to just have to bring everything plus the costs. And everything is all gets divided at the closing table. So net funding is much cleaner and easier. I didn't get it for a little for a little bit too when I did it, but we did it when we closed and I needed to understand it. So I finally, like, I asked the same question as you. I'm like, if we don't send them the money, how do we get paid? Yeah, that's and the answer. The answer is when you, when, you, when you finally close. And the answer is the actual cash comes in when, when the loan pays off. But the truth is, as a mortgage lender, you have a $400,000 asset on your books. The fact that you've net funded out your costs doesn't really hurt you at all. It's not a ca- it's not a cash flow problem either because you have this. Bu- and then I'm going to sell that four hundred thousand dollar loan in the secondary market. They're going to pay me for the whole four hundred thousand dollar loan. The fact that I net funded out my fees is, is irrelevant. So that's when I get paid back. 
So you brought up the, the second question I had. So hard money lenders, once they issue the loan, so I'll, I'll give you an example. There's a company called Kiabi. They used to be called Lending Home. Yes. I've borrowed probably seven figures from them at this point, right? And they're great. I just paid them off yet. They just got the wire yesterday from a property I did. I've discovered uh, by doing some homework and asking some questions that all Kiavi does, and this is very normal, is they originate, they're basically a fintech company, which stands for financial, financial technology. They issue loans, they pretty much warehouse fund them, and then they so, hunt them over to someone else. 100%. That's what everybody what does. That? Why, why do they do, like, what, what, what is the, who's buying these? Like, what's okay, so the deal with that? There's a tremendous secondary market for, for mortgages, right? Chase does the same thing, right? You, Chase has trillions of dollars, right? But Bank of America is trillions of dollars. But if they kept, if they made a loan and just kept it on their books, eventually they'd run out of money. So Chase will take their billions of dollars that they just originated yesterday, and they're going to sell it to Fannie Mae and get paid back. And everybody is just moving this thing. And then what does Fannie Mae do? Fannie Mae, I mean, it, it goes through, it goes, so it goes through, it can go through 12 people, right? You can have a mortgage broker who, who brokers the loan to a mortgage banker, right? The place I work was a mortgage banker. The mortgage banker might sell that loan to Bank of America. Bank of America will sell that loan to Fannie Mae. Fannie Mae packages up securities and sells securities to to to, uh, to nationwide insurance. Uh, that's the way it goes. It goes just keeps going through. It go, goes through the process, and everybody's making money in in, in the interim. Everyone. <laughs> so it's like a big daisy chain. It's what it is. But these things they are they are securities, right? You think we think of securities like as a stock or a bond. Mortgages are really bonds, right? A bond is just an IOU, right? You buy a bond for a thousand dollars, you're basically lending a company or a government money for a thousand dollars. A mortgage is the same thing, it's an IOU. It's a four hundred thousand dollar note that says you got to pay under these terms, and it's secured by a mortgage or a deed of trust, depending on what state you're in, that says if you don't follow the terms of the note, we're gonna foreclose on you. And that's what it is. So it's seen as extremely low risk. And the fact that we have government. One of the strengths of this country is that we have government-sponsored entities like Fannie and Freddie and FHA, which allow for this constant flow in the secondary market. Um, obviously, those guys got got screwed up in 2007 where they decided they wanted to get a, everybody should own a house, and they got and they got bailed out. Which is why, really, um, we everybody knows that it's a it's a it's a limited risk thing to buy Fannie Mae securities or Fannie, and Fannie Mae also has stock. You can buy all these things because you know that if everything hits the fan, the government's going to bail them out anyway. But it's uh, it's uh, it's just it's just a chain. Like there could be there could be seven people making money. You can strip off the servicing also. So Bank of America may decide not to service that loan, so they can sell the servicing. Somebody else get paid for somebody else's services because servicing has value, and then they can sell the the security to Fannie Mae, and Fannie Mae can strip the interest and the principal out of that too into more securities. Interesting. That that is a fascinating business. It's like the it's like kind of like the it's like an iceberg. You see the tip of the iceberg, and then underneath there's all the the. Foundation. Me, I had to learn. I had to learn all this stuff, and it was it was it was interesting. It was good. it was interesting stuff for me to learn. I learned it over many years. <laughs> yeah, that's that's interesting. So back to hard money now. So we talked about what it is. So if, if so, here's the thing that blew my mind with hard money that I didn't. That now it makes sense. A new investor, right? Like let's say they 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 have five dollars in the bank, but they have a really good deal. And the numbers make sense. You know, hard money lender will still loan on that property, assuming they find a way to bring money to the table. But they they got to there needs to be money. It doesn't need to be their money. Like, so it depends. It depends. Like before the crash, hard money was really asset based lending. They didn't run your cre anybody's credit. They didn't. 
ask you your experience. They looked at the loan. If the if the numbers made sense where you were below a certain percentage of the ARV, so your loan to value was okay, and your loan to cost was okay, like you want to, you're going to bring 10, 10% to the table, it was okay. After the crash, a lot of lenders, including Kiavi, want to know your credit and they want to know your experience. Now, they may still make the loan if your credit isn't great and your experience is, is weak, but they're going to give, they're going to want more money from you. But place, there's places like in Calvi, if, you're, if your credit's really bad, they're not going to lend you at all. No. And most of the big lenders today are going to check your credit and your experience to know it. There are lenders out there who, who, are, who don't, but they're few and far between. But in general, um, most lend, you know, it, it's, it's, it was a shift really since before, I'd say before 2008 and, two, and after 2008. So they, 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 it's really an asset-based loan in general, but they want, they want some kind of knowledge of who the borrower is today. Most do. Yeah. Because they just, they want to, they want to, you know, protect their downside for sure. So yes. when it comes to getting hard money in New York, okay. So there's really two things I want to cover. The first thing is what is a company that you've used in New York, besides like, yeah, they're a national lender, right? Who have you found in the New York, like Long Island, Hudson Valley, New York City area that has been pretty successful, at least for your business? And I'm sure if they're successful for your business, they're successful for other people's businesses. So I have used a company out of New Jersey called uh, ABL, Asset-Based Lending. They were pretty good. Uh, I did a lot of loans with them. I stopped after a while because they were a little annoying, but I they call me and Those I- Those oil I, tank guys? Those are the oil tank guys, right? And um, I've used Lending Home, which, uh, as you said, is now called Chiavi, which is a horrible name, but it means key in Italian. And um, <laughs> those are probably the better lenders I've used. I just signed up with a new lender called uh, Residential Capital, ResCap. They'll let, they, they're lending 100%, so I may use them. Are they in Austin, Texas? Yes. I just got approved with them. And, 100%? Yeah. If it's 65 LTV, it's 65 LTV on the ARV, they'll give you 100%. I like that. I got to look into that. Yeah, they were nice guys. I haven't borrowed from them yet, but I'm, but I might. Um, and there's, there's a lot. So there's a place called Rock Capital uh, in the city that's really good. Um, I've used them a bunch of times. Um, there's a million. There's a million. There's, there's. I have a sponsor for my RIA called Express Express Capital. Uh, I've never used them, but they're good. Um, so everybody's, I mean, there's, there, most, most places are similar. And the truth is a lot of them are selling their loans to the same place. So they're going to have similar criteria. That's why ResCap was intriguing to me because I, I don't know anyone else is doing hundred percent. And I thought that was good. And they're clearly making their own loans. So I like that. Um, but there's really an endless, there's an endless supply of hard money lenders. There's no hard money lenders have been, had a very, very good run since 2008, right? There's been almost oh, yeah. no defaults, right? And let me tell you, let's, I want to talk about something that people don't, don't, a misconception people have about hard money. Hard money lenders do not want to buy the property. They just no. want to get paid off. You yeah. know, people think I'm lending to hard money lender. He's just some greedy guy is sitting there salivating, waiting for me to default so he can jump on the property. <laughs> Nobody wants properties, right? These guys are not in the real estate business. They are in the lending business and they want you to turn that money as, as often as you can, right? Some places offer um, minimums like prepayment penalties in less than four months. Some don't. But most of them just want you to keep paying and paying it, and keep 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 paying it off. Nobody wants to take your property. Nobody. By the way, all the lenders, people think all oh, these greedy lenders, they made these crappy loans so that they can take the properties. Nobody wants to take your property. It's a huge, it's legal fees make it problematic. The actual logistics of taking a property from someone, getting them out, 
seeing what condition it's in. Nobody, no lender is interested in that ever. Yeah, it hasn't been, there is no lender out there that's just waiting, please, can this default? So if you're in the lending business, you just want to get paid off and do it again and turn your money as many times as possible. So I think that's a big misconception. People have hard money lenders. Oh, this guy just waiting to take the property. He don't, nobody wants to take your property. Nobody. No, nobody. No, nobody. You're absolutely right there. So actually that, that brings another question up because there's like, every, it's almost like this is like a big Pandora's box. So good, good. Most hard money lenders, because you and I have borrowed millions, right? Most of the loans are 12 month term, which means that the loan is a 12 month loan. And then after that, you that sell or refi, obviously, ideally before that. Okay. So what happens, and I know the answer, but I'm sure some people don't. What happens when you're paying your loan? So generally with hard money, you pay interest every month, right? That's how they make most of their money. Let's say you're in a project, you're doing a, a pop top rehab, as they say, those are popular in the, our area. And, you know, your contractor went to prison and then the snowstorm in February delayed construction and you were anticipating selling the house in nine months. And now it's going to be about 14 months and you are in the middle of a project. What happens and how does that not cause the project to get all fucked up? So I would say almost every lender has a, a, a provision for extending the loan. Most will extend for six months. Now they may charge a fee for it. Some do, some don't. Um, it really depends on the status. So if you said, listen, hey, I, I'm in contract to sell. It's going to take me another month. They might say, you know, I'll, we'll just charge you a little bit. But if you say I'm still in the middle of construction, they'll usually go. I find most guys, will, most of these lenders will go an additional year if you need it and you have a good reason for it and you're making payments on it. Um, some of them even have a six-month term and then they'll let you extend to a year and then let you extend again for to a year and a half. Um, but it's, it's part of the business. Every lender knows that things get screwy. Um, but if you're still, if you're making payments and you're, and you're communicative to them, I don't know many lenders that are going to allow you to extend for at least another year for up to two years. hundred percent. And that's the thing. They are still going to make money while they're doing that. Like they're, they're just moving right. money around. It's like a merry-go-round. So we're not happy, right? The, the, the thing that people don't understand is a lot of these hard money lenders are selling the loan. So that, let's say they're charging you 9%. They're borrowing it at, say, 7%. They're, they're making a very small differential. They're making the money on the points mostly. So they're, if they're charging you two points, they're making one or two of those points. So they want to turn their money because they want to get those points in as often as they can. But everybody knows that 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 construction projects go bad. So if you call your lender nine months in and say, I don't think I'm going to finish this in a year, He's not going to start yelling at you. He's going to say, okay, let's talk. Let's stay in touch. Tell me what's going on. And then if we need to extend, I'm going to charge you a 1% fee to extend and we'll, and we'll give you another six months. If you think, you know, when do you think it'll be done? It's most important is really staying in contact, right? The lenders get really uh, bugged out when somebody doesn't start responding to them because they think the guy ran away and they're going to get stuck with having to deal with the property. Yeah. So if you're communicative with a lender, I find almost every lender is reasonable. Um, I, I once dealt with a lender wasn't reasonable. Uh, what happened there? I said I need, I need I might need more time, and he and and the guy said, uh, you know, I, I I can't give it to you. We're gonna put you. We're gonna foreclose on you. I said, are you ready? You mind? I said, another month. Um, and I know somebody who dealt with the same lender, and they also like they 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 literally Got sent weird. him. They sent him. They they served him with foreclosure papers when he was like in contract to sell and needed like three more weeks, and then they hit him with all the legal fees at the, at the closing. So. There are there are some shitty lenders. I don't want to mention this one by name, but there are a few shitty lenders who are not reasonable. And this was 
So yeah, so but most lenders are, are, are most lenders want this to be a relationship that you enjoy, right? They want 100%. you to come back. So usually uh, beneficial transaction versus like right. some sort of boxing match. And 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 everybody knows that construction projects get get screwed up for a thousand different reasons. Like you said, a contractor disappears, a contractor goes to prison. Uh, you know, the municipality came in and saw that your your plan you weren't doing it exactly to to plans or to code and tell you to redo the whole thing. These things happen, and every hard money lender knows that. So. Um, but it is again. You have to you have to stay in touch with them. That's that's the most important thing. Hundred percent. My advice for people getting hard money is always this: like, because I know some lenders will do six month loans. I say borrow borrow for twelve months, especially in the beginning. You want to have a buffer. You don't want to feel like the clock's ticking. Like you want to like I'll give you an example. Actually, this this actually just happened like a couple months ago. So I borrowed hard money on a on a property with a shitty tenant, and uh, I actually refi refi. I ultimately refied out of the loan, but. I was like coming on to like month 10 and uh, I was like, oh shit, I got to get this. I got, I got to do something about this. So I ended up getting a local bank to do a refi, a cash out refi. And before, you know, about month 10, it was like 10 and a half months. They were like emailing me being like, Hey, like your loans go, they go like Kiavi that they did the loan. They were like, Hey, they have a whole department on like people that obviously they know what they're doing. They're the loan is the loan is coming due. Yes. The, 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 the show is almost over here. So, they were in contact with me. I was in contact with them. We got the whole thing paid off and it worked out, but funny that now these, that's funny. I, 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 the credit union who refied me, they, uh, they were like, you know, I, it was a rental property and put air quotes around that. And meanwhile, we're in court and, uh, you know, so, so here's the thing now it's like, uh, you know, I got money from it. I got proceeds, but it's like all the other rentals I have are basically paying for this one dog, but you got to always have an exit strategy. Like if, if my plan was to sell that piece of shit, ironically, it's on the market right now with bad tenants, but I would have been, you know, not really in a good situation because it's harder to sell a property with tenants than it is without, you know, sure. so, so I refied and I, that was my goal and I'm most likely going to keep it anyway, but you got to have a plan with these. You got to have multiple. Yeah. You should have multiple. So the first property I ever bought was an illegal three family. It was only listed as a single, but it had three units and fixed it up, got three tenants in it, wanted to sell it. Everybody gave us the same problem. It's illegal. Um, so I refinanced it and as a two family, which I don't know how I got that. And we, and we paid off the hard money lender and then we were cash flow positive. And eventually I sold it to one of the tenants on a like rent to own basis. So you need you have to you have to realize that 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 hard money lender's got to be paid off somehow. You should be able to refinance that. Theoretically, if you bought it right, you should be able to get a, a loan on it, um, a loan on it to get to pay off that to pay off your existing hard money loan. But what I, what I see all the time from like new 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 investors is they're still concerned with like the terms of that loan. They're like, I'm not paying hard money. I'm not paying ten percent. And like it's it's such a foolish way to think. When you think about the difference between a traditional loan and a hard money loan on a nine month period, like how long is it gonna take to flip a property? It should be like nine months. Um, talking about five, 10, $15,000, your deal should be lucrative enough that that's not relevant. If it gets you into the deal, by the way, that, that deal, that property I just told you about, I think I paid 16% rate with like six points. Like I got reamed on it. I don't know what I was doing. I used a broker. I was a, but I was, but you know what? In the end, it was a great deal. We, we made money on it and that was it. I just didn't know what I was doing. So, um, you can't be worried about you can't 
trip over dollars to pick up nickels. And I think a lot of people are so interested in that number. Oh, I, I, you're telling me 10, somebody else told me nine and a half. I'm like, what the hell is the difference? You know, figure out what that's going to be for a year. It, you're talking about $2,000. If your deal doesn't have enough money to pay for that expense, it's not such a good deal. And I, and I have to fight with people sometimes with it when they're taking hard money. I tell them to take as much as they can. And they're like, no, I'm going to put down another 10% because I save 1% on the rate. And I'm like, I don't think that's a good idea. You may need that money either for another deal or on this deal. Liquidity borrow, is borrow as much as you can. Keep that cash for when you need it. And people are like, well, my payment goes up by $400 a month. I go, you're going to sell this thing in nine to 12 months. It's it's five grand. And you you having that cash is really, really important. 100%. I always go for the 90% loan of value. Uh, maybe 100 now if I work with this new company. But that... That's where I see a lot of investors as we start to wrap the show up is they put all their money in a hard money loan, ironically, and they don't have the money to make payments or they don't have the money to get a new contractor because Chuck and a truck left. They don't have the money to deal with some of the bullshit and they put themselves and then they have to call another investor like you or me and we help them out. And, and, and you know, that happens. That happens all the time. All the time, rehab's gone bad. Someone just sent me one yesterday. It, the house is the house needs everything. It's been sitting there for four years. So some guy started to rehab it and never finished it. Gutted it, did the exterior, it lifted it. It had to be lifted, and it's, it's just sitting there. yeah. Oh. And I'm like, this house basically needs everything except except the roof. <laughs> you know, it's crazy. Yeah. And a family. So um, that we we buy we get calls all the time from people who started and ran out of money and. People just, I, I've, 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 I've bought properties from those people. I've lent money to those people. It happens all the time. So the idea that this thing is going to go exactly to plan and I have $1,000 in reserves, if it doesn't, is foolish. Oh. Borrow as much as you can every time. 100%. And especially in New York, I mean, the, just the carrying costs alone. I mean, like I always tell people, like, I remember the first time I borrowed hard money. I had a good amount of money saved. Well, I, I had decent money saved up at the time. And I remember, like, I was like, man, like, if someone's borrowing hard money, they got to have access to capital. Like they, it doesn't have to be their money, but you need to have some serious skin in the game. They're not going to like, you're walking into the closing normally. I mean, I normally, when I do a deal, I'm walking in with check for 30 grand, 40 grand of my own, usually money. Sure. And I'm like, fuck it, whatever. Like it is what it is. But like that, you know, that's obviously I'm, I'm I calculate where I'm at, but right. you got to have some doesn't have, money. doesn't have to be your money, but you got to get it from somewhere. Usually it's mine, but yeah, exactly. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not talking about yeah. you as you, oh, Greg Helbeck. I'm saying whoever the okay. you're coming to borrow hard money. You know, one of the things I did when I started is I had I had private lenders who were lending me gap funding. So okay. I would very often my projects I would borrow hard money on them, and I still need like a hundred grand in a gap in a gap funder for the the difference between what they were going to lend me, the closing costs, monthly payments. Uh, money to start the contract out. It ended up being a hundred grand. So I was borrowing that. Now in the end, that wasn't the greatest plan because I was giving them a percentage of the profits. And so after every deal, I had to pay this lender out all his money and his interest. And then I had to give a huge portion of the profit. So I ended up not doing that so much, so often, or at least at least uh, restructuring how it worked. But it doesn't have to be your money. You just have to get it from somewhere. You need 100%. to be available. Right? Got to have, gotta have some skin in the game or someone's skin in the game. So someone's I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure everyone got a lot of value today. So if they did, if they can leave a review, uh, we're going to come at you hard on the next one with a topic that uh, is, is new, but we're actively discovering it ourselves. So we'll kind of leave the teaser there. So subscribe to the show, leave a review, share it online, and uh, we'll see everyone on the next episode.